Good morning, everyone. This is David, and you're listening to the Machination Log for August 31st, 2018. The following is everything I've written on Twitter that is worth remembering. The worst part about asking why not is that you always get to find out. Anthrocon and the UFC Expo are both 75% guys. I doubt they would get along. One can't sanely wish to be like DFW. One can only wish for the gifts inexplicably cleaved from the rest of him. The goal of a lifetime. People compare things to poetry like that's an unqualified compliment. Four socks is faster to say than two pairs of socks. A linguistic remedy for a pair of pants isn't as obvious, but I'll work on it. In honor of Spinoza, I will end all explanations and assertions with etc. QED from now on. I'll be in the Grand Sierra Hotel less than 24 hours from now. By sheer coincidence, so will my unindoctrinated uncle. Ambassador time. Ended up regretting that one a little bit later, but eh, what are you going to do? If you want a picture of the future, imagine a paw stamping on my face forever. This is, of course, a quote from George Orwell. The human brain is 73% water, leaving only 27% for math and science. For the camera furs, if you ever feel like you need more megapixels, remember that the banner on the Carl Zeiss website is 980 by 308. Mushrooms are the estate tax of the animal kingdom. This tweet came just after China imposed some sort of sanctions on North Korea last year. North Korea's only meaningful ally has pulled financial support from the country. There's no cause for alarm because even if we knew the worst was imminent, there would be nothing to do. I'm not referring to mutually assured destruction. There's not much reason to suspect that outcome. The conventional is bad enough. Every provocation the DPRK could suffer has now come its way. If the Korean armistice is to end, any time from tonight on makes sense. What yardstick does one even use for guessing the eventual body count when 15,000 bombs fly over the DMZ into the world's fifth most prosperous city? home to half a million international residents, the capital of a major ally of the United States. Kim Jong-un's people have been under a multi-generational, physio-psychic torment we cannot understand. Sometimes we'll say we're all quote-unquote slowly dying, blithely referencing our mortality. His people know what slowly dying actually feels like. To emphasize, they are his people. One quarter of them are military personnel. Another 80 to 120,000 are political prisoners. 25 million people living in an ocean-wrapped echo chamber of state worship, desperated cannibalism, and a prophetic revenge tale. I don't want you to sit and stir on this for as long as I have, but you should know where you stand on the question of suffering and death. There is no peaceful resolution to the Korean conflict unless you consider suffering or death peaceful. I won't tell you whether you should. Thankfully, some of those forces have actually subsided in the meantime. Into the Breach has, at least so far, managed to capture the tactical magic of its development predecessor, FTL. That seemed impossible on its face, but Subset knows how to make a dang pixelated sci-fi game. Five railguns out of five. That was, of course, before you guys heard all the rest of the words on that. They say it's about what's on the inside, but if the outside is a sedan-sized wolf, I'm okay with whatever music they're listening to. This is both confessional and a rough metaphor to the entire culture clash within the fur community. 
Someone just praised Agricola because it lets her mostly play against herself while getting to fuck over other people sometimes. Is there any more succinct, comprehensive way to describe a bad game? Why is it the nose of the aircraft and not the beak? There's no box to think outside of. Raise your hand to push the wall you see, and your hand will go straight through. You don't get a box, let alone the one you believe in. If you want a box, a good box, you have to build it from scratch using what and who you find along the way. I've said that Better Call Saul is one of the best shows on TV when it's not aping its predecessor. This struck me as odd given that I recommend Better Call Saul based on whether someone likes Breaking Bad. I did some back research to square this. Better Call Saul is actually just a better show. Vince Gilligan didn't find his voice or lens until the second season of Breaking Bad. By then, the formula and grit were in place and he had to ride them out. This meant we got a lame, conflicted, super-competent anti-hero waltzing through the best suburban cinematography going. Now Gilligan gets to start over with Saul Goodman slash Jimmy McGill, who sucks in a much more interesting way than Walter White does. The stakes are lower, and the cast is far more nuanced, which complements his style much better. Every time I see the cartel come into view, I get bummed out. This isn't what you're good at, Vince. I want banal voyeurism into the nonsensical lives of sprawling New Mexico. Not a millionth take on The Sopranos. All I'm really trying to say is the Kettlemans are the best realized villains in modern television. I hate them so much. The musical at Biggest Little FurCon 2018 was rife with technical issues, poorly choreographed, and totally worth seeing. I feel an urge to clarify that this isn't sarcasm. It was simultaneously a clusterfuck and an enjoyable thing to watch on its own terms. I feel an additional urge to clarify that I don't use sarcasm in text form, only caustic hyperbole, though this second clarification is probably less helpful than the first. Audiophiles are a quibbling bunch, but we at least all agree on one thing. Anyone who spent more than we did on gear is crazy. This next one I'm actually preparing to do a panel at the next Midwest Fur Fest on because the concept came up during Pride Month this year and it annoyed the shit out of me. Most of the ace heartache going around stems from everyone, even in the queer community, not asking nuanced enough questions about how people feel. If people are wondering whether asexuality earns the badge of queer culture, consider the unifying principle of that culture. Quote, we don't fit in this box the world outlined for us, unquote. The community's job is to open that box so more of us can breathe. This next part's a lot easier to read than say. Male and female, or female and male, was pushed out to male and male, female and female, to male and female and male and female, to male or female is actually female or male, to male or female is actually something else altogether, this one's still in the oven, but it'll get there. We're pushing on the template, loosening the verbiage so it describes us better. Where homosexuality calls bullshit on the arrangement of attraction, asexuality calls bullshit on what we're measuring. An example, when someone says they are a little gay, it doesn't describe the magnitude of their total attraction. It means they're 80-20 on who gets it. But if they say they are super gay, they're suddenly describing the total rather than just saying they only like one or the other. 
This bait and switch between how much and who isn't the only one of its kind that makes describing a muted sex drive difficult. There's also the sex versus romance versus intimacy angle, which we are collectively awful at parsing. Everyone has to gloss this stuff somewhat as a result. Aces just get the short end of the stick because in a world where you're 25% keen on what everyone's talking about and the vernacular only supports 0, 100, or 200% on board, you will be misunderstood no matter what you say. I'm sure some aces are clinically so, and 0% accurately describes them, though even they have to deal with the chunky terms we use for this stuff. The rest of us, I speak from experience, are forced into a vocabulary wire act that is frustrating and confusing for everyone. It's hard to be more queer than to demand a more open starting point from which to understand someone else. And, as usual, the growing pains of doing so will ultimately make even the world resisting the attempt a better place. This next one references a meme that was going around that said, everyone share your unpopular opinions. This meme's been intensely frustrating to watch. I'm a contrarian in my bones, and it's a permanent psychic struggle for me to get along with other people because of it. The meme assumes what you normally say is already popular, and you'll be taking unpopularity for a spin. I'm a naturally unpopular person. Talking in long-winded, wordy ways, breaching uncomfortable subject matter is my brain's default setting. I end up having to connect with people on levels they're reflexively uncomfortable with, and that's depressingly hard to do most days. This isn't about subversion or provocation. Those words are as gross to me as most here. This is about my method of handling social space being mocked on a deep, basic level. If it leads to more people giving that way of talking a shot, awesome. Somehow, I doubt it. What we want from each other is simple most of the time. We unlearn how to talk directly because it's harder to do well than we'd like, and we eventually forget why we're here talking in the first place. Remember why you're here. It's less vain and cynical at base than you think. This next one refers to a thread made by a friend of mine called Hard Pills for Leftists to Swallow that I found way, way too easygoing for its name. So I had to step in. As a connoisseur of tough subject matter, I find this list way too soft and uplifting. I'd like to add some supplemental medicine in the form of leftist chemotherapy, a thread. Talking predominantly about America here, won't speak for other countries. 1. A potential ally is not an ally. Capitalism is an engine for converting indifference into power. It rewards people for staying focused on themselves. If they don't care enough to do something, they are at best not helping us. Make them care. Convert them. 2. We are fighting biology. People look up to the wealthy as a fundamental social protection, and they will employ staggering mental dissonance to reason their way into that stance. That one's supplemented with a video from an ABC broadcast of a guy defending his decision to vote for Don Blankenship for governor in West Virginia, despite the fact that Don Blankenship was at least indirectly responsible for killing three of his cousins. The money line coming out of that being, I want an honest crook, and that's Blankenship. 3. There is no historical roadmap for stable socialist praxis in the United States. The benefits of success are apparent, but there is no precedent to follow on how to maintain it. This is a square one, unsolved problem more of us need to work on. 4. The self-preserving mechanisms of power have only begun to mobilize. An unwarranted arrest here, a smear campaign there. If we make any inroads to impact the bottom lines of industry, expect people to start dying.
Five, there are a lot of lazy, stupid leftists. No different than any other group, but we have nowhere near as much cushion to fall on when things go awry. Be exemplary and don't put up with bullshit when you see it from anyone. Six, we're going to be blamed for economic lapses if we start winning no matter their cause. Our political enemies have been in resource extraction mode and momentum has a stabilizing effect. People will look at who kicked the scaffold and we will bear the brunt. 7. We've been living in a period blessed with near peace in the U.S. for years. If Syrian or Yemeni strife boils over onto us or Bolton gets his war with Iran, you will look back and laugh at how tired you thought you were today. 8. We might lose. Not just over and over again, but ultimately. This is too important not to fight for, but we have a shitload of work to do and time is not on our side. Do not kid yourself about how vital or treacherous an undertaking it is to make the world a better place. Remember, kids, I before E, except after C, unless your weird foreign neighbor is heir to an ancient heinous deity whose reign seized obeisance from an efficient species of rained poltergeists who therein weighed surfeits of veiled, albeit feisty, slights to inveigle their way back to a leisurely, atheist zeitgeist, where, at their height, seismic schemes forfeited neither surveillance nor science. Tag the movie needed more Hannibal Burris, but is still way better than the movies it gets compared to. A movie about adults playing tag would be exclusively stunts and jackassery nine times out of ten. I'm happy to say we got the one that also celebrates the importance of play. It's my one actual movie pass review for all intents and purposes. Today, like every day, something went down on furry Twitter, and it was bad and divisive, and I have no idea what it is. It's a surreal orbit. It's like there's a town on the other side of a hill, and every day there's a fireball on the horizon. Furs crawling up over the ridge with their limbs blown off, screaming, I love fire! It's all very confusing. Every once in a while, I'll creep over the ridge to see the wreckage, and without fail, it's someone doing a bad job defending themselves from some heinous shit they did. With a crowd chanting variously that it actually wasn't that bad, or that the offender and everyone who looks like them should be hurled into a pit, both of which are stupid and infuriating positions. And so I return to my hovel on the other side of the hill and go back to sleep, certain I could have done something to help, having not the slightest clue what it might have been. I'm a fur, and this will continue. A bomb might drop on my side of the hill someday, who knows. It's worth the price of admission, but only because the concert is so good. I hate the mixed metaphor I employed there, but now what are you going to do? Shouldn't it be five cents per, not five percent? Or at least five per hect? This next one is in reference to a bunch of ribbons that were passed out at a fur convention in Europe that said Nazi furs fuck off on them. If the Euroference 2018 Nazi fur ribbons bug you, for whatever moral or aesthetic reason, take a second to recall the other thousand things that also annoy you about how cons are run. If you still hate the sentiment, don't go. Spend some time grappling with your reflex to defend bad people. If you're doing this introspection correctly, it should be painful and embarrassing, and it might take a long time. You found your way here through what felt like reason and common sense through rigorous application of fundamental rules of fairness. But, somewhere down the line, you changed what you meant by fair. Might have been on accident, 
might have been a matter of survival, but you started equating it to what life gives you rather than what it ought to give you. Suddenly, everything is as it should be. As it is. Nazism, more abstractly fascism, hyperbolizes this logic. Everything you can get should be yours. Power, territory, jobs, respect. You know that's wrong, deep down somewhere, but you can't fight it because it conforms to your conceptual framework. And so you let it go. Is Nazi furs fuck off abrasive for a non-adult con? Yeah, I'd have preferred heck off myself. But the people the ribbon wards off should stay home until they summon the willpower and empathy to rebuke the pathology of petty selfish aspiration. Good luck, and many hugs if you do. So that's the complete list of written stuff that's worth remembering. There's a bunch of pictures and videos and that kind of nonsense, and I actually stuck all of that up in a general anthology on machinationlog.com for perusal. But what is actually of value in Twitter? I'm asking myself this question now um, on the back of hitting 200 followers, which is not a ton. I mean, it costs everyone literally nothing to hit the follow button other than the inconvenience of scrolling past more tweets they don't like. But what has actually transpired and what do I get out of Twitter? From the production angle, it's clear that I actually cared a lot about them expanding the number of characters you can use from 140 to 280 because the second they did that, it's immediately obvious in this anthology. All of the tweets start getting very, very, very long by comparison, and even the rants I end up using more space on. But other than that, um, from a writing perspective, I put out better stuff than that on a regular basis on this podcast, I think. I mean, that was three years of stuff, and what, that's almost 17 minutes of content? That's, that's a really bad ratio. So maybe I should just stick to dog pictures or something. On the consumption side, I've been using Twitter way, way, way too much recently, but I don't think it's a force for ill. I think it's completely, as I've said before, all technology is a tool and it's up to you to use it correctly. There are things that are nice about Twitter, uh, in particular as a relaxant, as a thing, and that I understand how ironic that might sound at first glance, but if you tailor your experience of Twitter to be at arm's length at all times which, ironically, my Twitter account does an absolutely atrocious job of. Um, like, I'm not, I'm not in that camp. But if, for example, you follow the basics, if you follow drill, and you follow best of next door, and you follow non-aesthetic things, and what's the other one? Leon's pretty good, or Leon, as it seems to be pronounced. Like, you get a good core of those together, and then it's just a good place to hang out for five minutes and zoom away. And I think, there's, I think there's some value in that. It's a decent reset. The question then, though, is, is it the best reset? Because as I remember from reading Cal Newport's book, Deep Work, recently, it's not a function of whether it's useful. It's a function of whether it is the most useful thing you could be doing with five or ten minutes. And that's much harder to judge. I don't connect to all that many people through Twitter. I generally do that through just chatting, either in person or in text. And I find that to be substantially more engaging, fulfilling, what have you. But it also doesn't open all that many opportunities for finding other people 
And at that point, it's a question of whether or not that is valuable to you. But then, of course, that raises the question, do I actually find anyone through Twitter? And I would have to go back and look and see if that's actually true. I don't know. Maybe I'll just delete my Twitter now that I've offlined all the good stuff. In any case, it's not a complete loss. I just need to either lean harder into it, which I don't think I'm going to do, or back off from it a little more than I have been recently. I've been getting a little more preachy. I've definitely been a little more political, and it'd be much, much better to be political on this podcast. So we're going to bring that shit back now that it is important in a way that it hasn't been. Um, I don't think I had promised having Ryan on the podcast to do stuff for the elections coming up, but that definitely is going to happen. And then from there, I have been making stuff. I just haven't been talking about it because I'm an idiot and I constantly forget to do so. But you guys know how that is. You've been following this the whole time. And thank you for doing so. Um, yeah, let's stop capitalizing on your time. Go do something important. Do something cool and then, I don't know, post about it. That's what everybody else is doing anyway. Good morning, everyone. <laughs>